Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Kebar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. I, in this case, meaning, of course, the prophet Ezekiel, whose mission to Israel began in the year 593 BCE after the first deportation of exiles to Babylon in 598, but before the final cataclysm of the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 587-86. Before you know anything else about Ezekiel, know that he flourished, if that is the right word, in an age of mayhem and destruction and political as well as religious uncertainty. The world was falling apart, the center did not hold, and what else was Jerusalem but the very center and navel of the cosmos? In short, it was your typical prophetic situation when the question as to whether the Lord still speaks or if he does speak, whether anyone will listen, can be evaded no longer. Ezekiel was a priest, a literate man, and so his is an intricately structured and powerfully written book. It is also, frankly, rather weird in places. The prophet eats animal dung after talking God down from human dung. He lies on his side for months at a time. He cuts his hair, burns some of it, throws some of it to the wind, and hacks the rest of it with a sword. He uses his own body as sight for a kind of performance art. Ezekiel's language and imagery frequently shock us and are meant to do so. As this sermon series unfolds over the coming weeks, my colleagues will deal with these hard passages as they arise, and I am sure they will clear away all remaining difficulties. But bear in mind that the reason we bother to struggle with these hard passages is the Christian conviction that Scripture is the Lord's word to the Lord's people in 21st century Toronto, no less than in Babylon by the banks of the river Kebar. Now, the phrase, the word of the Lord, occurs early on in our reading for today. Now, the word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, son of Butsi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar. And the hand of the Lord was on him there. That sounds like your typical call formula for an Old Testament prophet. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. But before that, in verse 1, we are told that the heavens opened and that Ezekiel saw visions of God. There is visionary experience in almost all the prophets. The visions are an important corrective to our tendency to suppose that the word of God is wordy, that is, chiefly concerned with ideas or principles or even doctrines. Who knows, perhaps even a kind of critical theory of religion. Well, prophets do have the task of sharing God's living word with God's people, but the word of God is not, first of all, ideas or doctrines, 
The word of God is the display of God's being and will for us. In language, yes, but also in visual and even tactile form. The visions of the prophets testify to the overwhelming reality of God, who is so real that we cannot stop ourselves from gazing upon him. But Houston, or rather Babylon, we have a problem here. Because isn't the Lord God of Israel supposed to be invisible? There was famously no image of the Lord in the temple, no statue or idol by which he might be identified. Rather, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and above it the mighty cherubim, and above the cherubim, an empty space. That empty space is a rather terrifying thing when you think about it, the sign of a radically transcendent deity, a god who refuses to be boxed in or domesticated. Whatever else the temple or the church may be, Neither one is a container for God. And as a priest, Ezekiel would have known all about that absent space between the cherubim. But as soon as we note the invisibility of Israel's God, we immediately begin to think of all sorts of exceptions to the rule. The theophanies, whether the mysterious visitors to Abraham at Mamre, so often taken as an icon of the Trinity, or the Lord revealing his name to Moses at the burning bush, or the Lord on Sinai passing before Moses, who sees to be sure only God's hinder parts, or Isaiah's great vision when he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Within Scripture, it is Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 that forms the closest connection to the vision described in Ezekiel 1. There is a big difference, of course, Isaiah has his vision in the temple, the right place for such an experience to happen, whereas Ezekiel is thousands of miles away in Babylon, 1,678 miles to be exact. I did it on Google Earth. The earth, the Lord is not bound by creaturely space and time. But just as God is not simply invisible, so he is not simply omnipresent spread out across the universe like cream cheese on a bagel or a misty fog on a London night. As Robert Jensen notes in his excellent commentary on Ezekiel, God's omnipresence means that the entire creation is but a single place for him. His dwelling is in heaven, to be sure, but at any moment the distance between heaven and earth may collapse to reveal the Lord's terrifying intimacy with his creatures. The creature's space is drawn into the Lord's space. This is what happens to Ezekiel. He has visions of God. And what does he see? He sees a throne, or rather, the throne. The vision unfolds gradually, showing Ezekiel's flair for the dramatic. First, he sees a thunderstorm with flashing lightning, reminiscent of the theophany on Sinai. Then, in the midst of the storm, he sees four creatures. These are the cherubim, no longer the gold figures in the temple, but living beings in human form, each with four faces, human, lion, ox, and eagle. 
we will meet these creatures again slightly modified in the book of Revelation, and they would go on in Christian tradition to become the symbols for the four evangelists. The creatures have four wings supporting the dome or firmament above them. But first, Ezekiel describes the wheels that accompany each of the creatures, like no wheels on earth, with a, with a wheel within each wheel, whatever that means. Somewhat disconcertingly, the wheels are outfitted with eyes all around their rims. I am sure that if you went online, you would find quite literal depictions of all this, artists' sketches and so on, but don't do it. Don't look it up, that is, because such literal representation is beside the point. Ezekiel is not drawing a diagram. He is seeking to display the power and majesty of God in the form of word pictures. The wheels speak of the Lord's transcendence over space and time, his hypermobility, while the eyes speak of his all-seeing wisdom. The Lord knows things unimaginably from their insides. Call this omnipresence and omniscience, if you will, though these terms pale in comparison with the vision itself. The beating wings of the cherubim support a dome, as I've said, and above the dome we find the throne itself, which, however, doesn't get much description. Ezekiel simply says that it's like a sapphire. And on the throne is seated something that seemed like a human form, like amber from the waist upward, fiery from the waist downward, and surrounded by fire. The whole scene is alive with color, like the bow of a cloud on a rainy day, such was the appearance of the splendor all around. And the prophet sums up the whole vision by saying, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Who is it that is seated upon the throne? It is the Lord, of course, the Lord God of Israel. But why in human form? At this point, we have a fundamental hermeneutical decision to make. We could say that just as all language about God is metaphorical and analogical, words you should probably avoid using in your sermons in your congregations, but just as all language about God is metaphorical and analogical, so the prophet has no choice but to represent the Lord as a human. God is like a human king, only he's not. God rides on a chariot outfitted with angelic wheels and eyes. Only, of course, he doesn't. Ezekiel, in other words, is an early proponent of what we would call metaphorical theology. We speak about God in human terms, which are the only terms available to us, but then constantly remind ourselves of the inadequacy of our images, though God himself remains hidden behind the images. Students who have taken Systematics 1 know to call this modalism. That would, that would be the standard teaching of late modern theology, which is, sadly, the operative theology of our congregations. God remains hidden behind the images, unknowable, unseen. All in all, it's pretty tame stuff. But there is a more daring reading of the passage, and you've probably guessed that it's the one I would favor. The church fathers, you see, had no doubt as to who sat upon the throne that Ezekiel glimpsed. It was, of course, Jesus. 
Not Jesus instead of the Father, but Jesus as the Father's perfect image, the Lamb slaughtered and yet victorious, the one who in the book of Revelation is seen to be sharing God's throne. It is Christ who is enthroned upon the cherubim with their many eyes, Christ who is the incarnation of the divine power and wisdom and, yes, love. But in Ezekiel, perhaps the divine attribute we need most to stress is the sheer weight and substance of the Lord's glory, his kabod. This was the appearance of the likeness, of the glory of the Lord. It is an emphasis shared by the fourth gospel. We have beheld his, that is, Christ's glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Why are Ezekiel's visions so rich? Why are his descriptions of the being and actions of God so lavish and over the top? Because the incarnation gives him something to describe. In the midst of exile, by the banks of the river Kabar, the Lord who wills to be with and for his people in Jesus Christ is already present. Israel knew the incarnate one, even though he was not yet incarnate. If that offends our sense of chronology, then so be it, for the Lord has a way of exploding the containers we put him in. And that is why reading the prophets, even a difficult prophet like Ezekiel, is always an encounter with good news. There is, of course, lots of bad news in the prophets. Sin, rebellion, death, destruction, among other things. Ezekiel opens with Israel in Babylon, exiled for their sins. This does not seem a very promising beginning. But into the midst of Babylon, by the banks of the river Kabar, the Lord's chariot appears in a flame of fire. The Lord is with us, and so all is not lost. May we who also live in Babylon know his glory and his judgment and his grace and take comfort in the good news of his coming. Amen.